Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to be, so if you have your copy of God's Word, I hope you do. You can take that and turn with me uh, to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to finish the first chapter with verses 28 and, and 29. Colossians 1 verses 28 and 29. But since these verses are part of that larger paragraph that you can see there, we're going to pick up reading in verse 24 um, so that we have the context for the whole paragraph. So let's do that now. Let's read together. Would you follow along with me as we read from God's Word? This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all Christ's energy that he powerfully works within me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Let's pray together as we begin our time. Father, we want to hear from you, and we are grateful that you have spoken to us in the scriptures. We we are thankful that you are not silent. You are a God who speaks, and when you speak, Father, your people live. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so as we have come together tonight to consider your word again, we have come, Father, because we want to live. We want to be nourished. We want to be strengthened. We want to know you, God, for in knowing you there is life. So help us, Father. Help our hearts and minds to be focused in here for just a few, a few minutes of time to consider your word, to consider how we might apply it and live it out within the context of our church, within the context of our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our families, Father, and to the ends of the earth. Give us grace, Lord. Please keep me from error. We want to handle your word rightly, and so we pray for the Holy Spirit's illumination. I pray, God, that you would please protect your dear people by keeping them in the truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my prayers, and this is the prayer of all the elders I know, one of my prayers for Fisherville is that our church would be marked by a culture of discipleship. If you hang around me long enough, you'll hear me say that phrase. We want our church to be marked by a culture of discipleship. Many churches have programs of discipleship, but few churches prioritize a culture of discipleship. What's the difference? In a culture of discipleship, every member recognizes his calling to carry out the ministry of the gospel. In a culture of discipleship, every member understands that her role in the church is to make disciples in whatever sphere of life the Lord has given you. In a culture of discipleship, every member understands that the ministry belongs to all of us together and that it only advances when all of us are engaged in the work of making disciples. 
Sadly, that kind of thinking is not typical in a local church. We have unfortunately equated the ministry of the gospel with things like the pastoral office or missionary service. And since the vast majority of Christians are neither pastors nor missionaries, most church members simply tune out when they hear the phrase, the ministry of the gospel. And it's okay if you have tuned out in the past. That's what I would expect you to do. Most members tune out when they hear that phrase because they assume we're talking about professional Christian workers. And yet, when you read the New Testament closely, you find a much different picture when it comes to gospel ministry. According to the New Testament, each and every Christian has been entrusted with the gospel. And therefore, every Christian should be considered a minister of the gospel. Now, that's not to deny the specific calling to pastoral ministry or to missionary service, but it is to say that the ministry of the gospel must not be limited to those things. Must not be limited to the pastoral office or to missionary service. In fact, when you study the New Testament, it's clear that the job of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4 is the prime example. God gives gifts to his church. One of his gifts is pastors. And what do pastors do? Equip the saints so that each and every member is building up the body of Christ. In fact, in Ephesians 4, if each and every member is not equipped to build up the body, then the body does not attain to mature manhood in Christ. It takes every member. So in the New Testament, who carries out the ministry? Not a supposed class of professionals, but the church as a whole each and every member of the body of Christ. If you belong to the Lord Jesus by grace through faith, then you are, in a real sense, entrusted with the gospel for the work of the ministry. That mindset is at the core of a culture of discipleship. Our text in Colossians chapter 1 has much to say on cultivating a culture of discipleship. You may recall from last week, that Paul has been describing his own ministry as an apostle. That's why we started reading in verse 24 how Paul shared in Christ's sufferings for the sake of the church and how he devoted himself to making the word of God fully known. That was what Paul was doing at the beginning of the paragraph. In verse 28, however, Paul makes a small but significant shift. He includes the Colossians in his work. Look at it again, verse 28, and notice Paul's language. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Who is doing the proclaiming in verse 28? We are, Paul says. Paul and the Colossian believers. Now, some commentators would object here and say that when Paul says we he only has himself and his missionary band in view, so Paul and Timothy and uh, you know, Silas and maybe Barnabas, depending on when you date this letter. So when Paul says we, some commentators would contend he only has himself and his missionary band in view. But I would say that that interpretation is too limited. Here's why. Later in chapter 3 of this same book, Paul gives instructions for how the Colossians should minister to one another. And he uses the same language 
as found here in verse 28. It's the same language, admonishing and teaching one another with all wisdom. It's very striking. If you look at chapter 3, verse 16, and chapter 1, verse 28, they're linked by a common language. From that, I take it that when Paul says we, in verse 28, he's describing not only his ministry, not only Silas's ministry, but also the ministry of the whole church, every member together. That's the real value of the passage, I would argue. Ministering the gospel, building up the church. Who's responsible to do that? Not only Paul, not only pastors, but we are. We are responsible to do that together, the body of Christ. So here's our aim for this evening. If we want to cultivate a culture of discipleship, and I will argue that we ought to do that, if we want to cultivate a culture of discipleship, what features should we prioritize and pursue? What should our ministry look like? This text gives us three answers in simple form. The message of our ministry, the goal of our ministry, and the reality of our ministry. Message, goal, reality. That's where we're headed. So let's begin by thinking about the message of our ministry. Right away in verse 28, we see the essential role that the entire church plays in God's plan. The first phrase of verse 28 is very clear. What is the church's commission? To proclaim Christ. Him we proclaim, Paul says. There's no denying then that the church is a speaking people. We are a people of words. We speak. You may have heard the saying before, um, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Have you ever heard that saying? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. A message cannot proclaim itself. It has to be spoken by someone. And in the plan of God, that someone is the church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So at the core of our identity, we are a speaking people because we serve a speaking God. Whether it's in the gathering of the church or in the course of daily life, we are called to speak. Whether it's a word of encouragement to a fellow Christian or an explanation to an unbeliever, we are called to speak. Paul's teaching in verse 28, it's very clear. Him we proclaim. That reminds us that we are a speaking people at our core. Even so, this ministry of proclamation raises the question, what exactly is the content of our message? Well, look again at verse 28. Paul gives us the clear answer. Him we proclaim. Christ is the content of our message. We proclaim Christ. What I love about this passage is that Paul has already filled in for us who the Him is. He's already given us the truth about Christ that we're called to proclaim. Think about just the context of the letter. What has been the subject of chapter 1? all through the whole chapter, the person and work of Christ. So if we were to just go back through chapter 1, we would find an excellent summary of what we're called to proclaim about the Lord Jesus. That's, I think, how Paul wrote the letter. When he says, Him, we proclaim, he wants you to go, who's the Him? Oh yeah, that's right, the person that Paul's been talking about since verse 3, the Lord Jesus. So if we were to go back through the, the first chapter, we would find this excellent summary. I think we ought to do that. Let's just summarize real briefly here in a few points what it is that we're supposed to proclaim about Jesus. 
we are called to proclaim Christ's divinity. Verse 13, Jesus is God's own beloved Son. And verse 19, in Christ the fullness of God dwells bodily. When we speak of Jesus, we speak of His divinity, that He's fully God. At the same time, we are also called to proclaim Christ's humanity. Verse 22, Jesus came to this earth with a body of flesh so that he was like us in every way, yet without sin. And verse 20, that body of flesh enabled Jesus to shed his own blood at the cross. When we speak of Jesus, we speak of his humanity, that he is fully God. We are called to proclaim Christ's uniqueness. Verse 15, Christ alone is the image of the invisible God. No one has ever seen God. But when the Son took on flesh, He revealed to humanity what God is like. And this is a work that only God can do. When we speak of Jesus, we speak of His uniqueness, that He alone reveals the Father. With this uniqueness, we also proclaim Christ's authority. Verse 16, Christ is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth which means He rules all things for the glory of God. We proclaim that Christ is King and Sovereign, and then we call people to submit their lives to Him. When we speak of Jesus, we speak of His authority, that He rules over everything, including you. This unique authority means we also proclaim Christ's exclusivity. Verse 14, Since Christ alone is the image of God, redemption is found only in Him. He is the only one who is able to forgive sins since He alone provides the perfection God demands while also serving as the substitute we need. When we speak of Jesus, we say that He is exclusive, that He alone can save. We're called to proclaim Christ's atonement. Verse 21, Christ makes peace through the shedding of His blood. Peace between whom? Between sinners and God. And verse 22, the result is that sinners are reconciled to God once and for all. When we speak of Jesus, we must speak of His atoning blood. We're called to proclaim Christ's resurrection. Verse 18, Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. His resurrection is the guarantee of the resurrection for those who believe. His his resurrection is the first of many resurrections. When we speak of Jesus, we speak of His life-giving Resurrection from the dead. And therefore, we are called to proclaim Christ's worthiness. Verse 18. In everything, Christ deserves to be preeminent. He is exalted and supreme. So that verse 23, the right response to Christ is faith leading to worship. The worship of Christ is not an afterthought to our message, but essential to our message. When we speak of Jesus, we speak of his worthiness, that he deserves all blessing and honor and glory. Him we proclaim, Paul says. Jesus' divinity and humanity, his uniqueness, authority, and therefore exclusivity, his atonement and resurrection, and finally his worthiness to be trusted and worshipped as the Lord of all things. Brothers and sisters, that is our message that we preach and that we live. Central to our identity as the church is this Christ-centered, biblically-rooted, gospel-focused proclamation. What do we speak of? 
Jesus and him crucified. At this point, we've emphasized our Christ-centered message, but we're probably still thinking about preaching sermons (laughs) or sharing the gospel in evangelistic settings. And that is certainly included in the ministry of proclamation in God's providence. He does call men to devote their lives to the preaching of the gospel in the gathering of the church, and God does call brothers and sisters to leave their homes and go to the far reaches of the globe to proclaim the good news of Christ. Those kinds of ministries are certainly in view, and each one of us should be willing to consider that God is very well calling us to such a work. So I'm not seeking to denigrate any of those things. At the same time, the rest of verse 28 makes clear that Paul is not thinking exclusively about preaching sermons or being a missionary. He's also thinking about the work of the gospel that happens in the everyday life of the church. Notice the next phrase in verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Those two activities, warning and teaching, define the ministry of proclamation within the life of the church. What are we all called to do? Warn and teach one another. To warn someone here just means to admonish them, to counsel them, to exhort them to turn from the way that they are going. So because of the truth about Christ, we warn one another about the dangers of sin. We plead with one another and exhort and urge each other to live in step with the gospel. And this warning is then followed by teaching, where we instruct one another on a better way to live, where we remind each other of what it means to submit to the lordship of Christ. Warning and teaching always have to go together in the life of the church. Admonishing and encouraging always go together. If all we ever do is admonish and never teach, we're likely to just discourage people or harden their hearts. And you can't harden someone's heart, right? By doing the right thing in the wrong way. But when our warning is combined with teaching, when our admonishment is combined with encouragement, that sting of correction is followed by the insight that leads to growth. This is why Paul says that we ought to warn and teach one another with all wisdom. Do you see that phrase in verse 28? With all wisdom. To be a minister of the gospel means we think carefully about who we're talking to, about what circumstances they face, and about what specific truth they need to hear at that moment. Who am I talking to? What are they facing? What are they enduring? What do they need to hear at this moment? Friends, that's what it means to proclaim the truth with all wisdom. You listen first And then prayerfully consider what aspect of the gospel does my brother or sister need to hear right now. There's no one-size-fits-all approach to ministry. That's why those little handbooks on what to do in specific moments in church ministry, just don't read them. Because there's no one-size-fits-all approach. People are different. Churches are different. Places are different. Circumstances are different. The non-negotiable is the truth about Christ, but the application of that truth requires wisdom, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. You listen and then prayerfully consider what needs to be said. 
Friends, what I'm trying to do this evening is to help us see that there's both a broad and a narrow approach to ministry, and both of those require the entire body of Christ. There's a broad way to proclaim the truth that certainly includes things like preaching sermons, going on mission trips, and doing evangelism in public settings, but that narrow approach to ministry is just as essential in the life of the church. It's the day-in, day-out work of ministering to one another as a body. We tend to only think about the broad, only think about the public, and we neglect the narrow, and we neglect the within the walls of the church. We proclaim Christ to the world, but we also proclaim Christ to one another. That's the message of our ministry. It's the lordship of Jesus. You come to the end of verse 28. Paul gives us the second feature for a culture of discipleship. It's the goal of our ministry. The goal. Notice again what Paul writes. This is the end of the verse. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What's the goal? Maturity in Christ. This is countercultural. And I mean countercultural in the church. The goal of ministry is not numerical growth or cultural prestige. The goal of ministry is not relevance or impact. The goal of ministry is not to redeem the culture. The goal of ministry is maturity in Christ. We do the work of the gospel so that each one of us will grow up, so to speak, in the faith and be conformed more fully to the image of Christ. That's the goal. And, and this goal is worked out in the present, it's worked out right now, but it has the future in view as well. It's looking towards the, the last day. Paul's not simply thinking about spiritual growth in the present, he's also thinking about spiritual growth for the end. That, that's really the key to this last phrase in verse 28. When Paul says, present everyone mature, he means present them before God on the last day, on the final day of judgment. At its most basic level then, man, at its most basic level, ministry in a church is aimed at what we call the perseverance of the saints. That's what we're all doing here with one another, is helping one another persevere. Remember, salvation, biblically defined, is a past present, and future reality. In His grace, God has saved His people once and for all from the consequences of sin. God is saving His people day by day from the dominion of sin, and God will save His people on the last day from the presence of sin. Past, present, future, God saves His people. Paul's point in verse 28 is that our ministry to one another, mine to yours and yours to me, our ministry to one another is part of how God works to save us in that final sense, in the last day sense. How is God going to get you and me to the, to the judgment seat in the faith? He's going to get us there through one another, through the ministry of one another within the life of the church. Our ministry of the word today is God's means of grace for the last day. That's the perseverance of the saints that's how God's grace protects us for the final day. It's through the ministry of the word that's happening 
day in and day out in the life of the church. So I, I hope you see what a high and important calling each Christian has received as a member of Christ's body. It's not an insignificant thing to be a member of a church. It's why churches ought to work hard at having their membership accurately represent who belongs to God. Because it's part of our work towards one another. We are helping one another persevere to the end. We have been tasked with ministering to one another in light of the last day. We have been called to be God's instruments of grace in his church. Friends, there's no higher ministry than this. Many times, I've been pastoring for about 11 years. It's not a long time, but I'm only 40, so I guess it's a long time for me. Many times, I've had Christians come to me, church members come to me and say, I'm never going to do anything significant for the Lord because I can't do a public thing. I don't preach. I'm not an upfront person. I'm never going to do anything important in the ministry, so what, what should I do in the church? What should I do, pastor? Because I, I can't do upfront things. Friends, that mindset is shaped more by the culture than it is by the Bible. Right here in verse 28, we see that every Christian fundamentally has the most important ministry of all, being instruments of grace that God uses to persevere his people for the last day. Let's not mistake visibility for significance when it comes to the church. Let's not think that the ministry equals having a platform. I don't even know what that language means in the church. It means something gross. Let's not mistake visibility for significance. Gathering with the church so that God's people hear his word. Have you ever thought about the fact that just coming to church on a Sunday enables the ministry of the word to continue? There has to be someone to preach to. So you come and the word of God goes out and you don't know who is here, who's receiving it. The ministry of the pew is significant. Come! Gathering with God's people to hear his word, encouraging a brother or sister with the scriptures, sharing Christ with your neighbors, co-workers, and your family, discipling that new Christian in God's word who's not really sure how to read the Bible. Those are all means through which God is working to mature his people to keep them for the last day. What's happening at that moment? God is saving us through the ministry of one another. That's a culture of discipleship. That might sound like a lot of pressure, right? What if we fail in our ministry? What if we don't carry out the work the right way? What if we don't present everyone mature? What then? Those are good questions. I ask that question like every Sunday afternoon. Those are good questions. I would argue that Paul anticipated those questions and he answers them with some encouragement. It's right here in this chapter. Look back to verse 22. I love it when the grammar of a verse or a chapter <coughs> reveals the truth. Verse 22, Paul describes the work of Christ and he says that Christ reconciled us in order to present, you see it, to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So now make the connection with our ministry. Why has Christ reconciled his people? In order to present them holy. Why are we called to minister to one another? In order to present one another mature in Christ. It's the same language. It's the same purpose. That's the encouragement. Our ministry together is the outworking of Christ's ministry to his body. Our ministry to one another is built upon the grace of Christ displayed at the cross. And since Christ's work 
cannot fail. Our ministry to one another will not fail because it's undergirded by the unshakable power and grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus will not fail to save any of his sheep. All whom the Father has given to me will come to me and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. No one. How is he keeping them in his hand through you and me and the ministry of the word applied by the Spirit in the life of his body? It's incredibly good news. So be encouraged. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Right now, today, in the life of our church, there's a twofold outworking of grace. We are both participating in and receiving from the grace of the Lord Jesus. Jesus loves his church more than you or I do, and he loves his church so much that he gifts his church with a body that ministers to one another. That's the goal of our ministry. It's part of a culture of discipleship. That brings us to verse 29. Last feature for a culture of discipleship, the reality the reality of our ministry. We looked at the message, looked at the goal. Let's think about the reality for a moment. You'll notice in verse 29 that Paul again speaks of himself. The, the we in verse 28 fades out. Paul again speaks of I, his own personal ministry. Why does he change back? Because he's going to set the example here. He's going to point to himself as an example that he faces the same reality in ministry that every Christian faces. And that reality has two parts, both of which we need to understand if we're going to be faithful to make disciples. The reality has two parts. The first reality is that ministry is hard. Look at verse 29, where Paul says very honestly, For this I toil. That's a really tame translation. Paul's point is that he works very, very hard. He struggles, he fights, he labors so that Christ's people will be rooted in the gospel. Friends, if that was true for the Apostle Paul, how much more so will it be for us? Being a minister of the gospel is hard work. Being a disciple maker in the church is hard work. Ministry is a fight, in other words. As Paul says in Ephesians, we wrestle against not only the sin that dwells in our own hearts, but we also wrestle against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's hard. It's a fight. It's a battle. I remember a pastor telling, an older pastor, I like to hang out with older pastors because they remind me that you can make it. <laughs> Every older pastor is a gem. Uh, this older pastor told me, he said, Jeff, you're going to spend hours upon hours upon hours of labor for inches of growth. And that's just how it is. So don't grumble don't murmur, just do the work. Yes, sir. <laughs> right? And I, I think that's true. Just think about the example in, your, in our own lives. When it comes to your spiritual growth, friends, do you tend to grow slow or fast? I grow slow. Right? So do other people. <laughs> so stick with it. Stick with it. It's hard work. It's labor. It's toil. Another pastor I remember one time asked me, which one takes longer to grow? Weeds or redwoods? And I said, redwoods. And he was like, right, you don't want weeds in your church. Things that grow fast tend to not last. Man, these old guys, have got all the stuff. I mean that affectionately. Being a minister of the gospel is hard work. 
But when it gets hard, we can think of Paul's example and we can remind ourselves this is just how the ministry of God's word works. It's not that I'm doing it wrong. It's not that I, that I am just not cut out for this. It's just that ministry is hard work. So keep at it. Keep having the conversation with your neighbor. Keep praying for your friends. Keep discipling your children. Keep investing in brothers and sisters in the church. Keep speaking the truth in love to that person who seems hard-hearted. Yes, that's a fight, but keep at it. That's what Paul's saying. Keep at it. His example is a reminder to us that the ministry we've received is hard work. The second reality completes the first. Ministry is hard, but Christ's strength is sufficient for the ministry. Notice the rest of verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. What an incredible provision from the Lord Jesus, that he would give us the strength we need to carry out the work he's given us to do. And lest we forget, Christ's strength has no limits. Christ's strength crushed sin, conquered the grave, and reigns from heaven's throne. And it's that strength, Paul says, that's at work in us as we carry out the labor of gospel ministry. This is one of the astounding mysteries of the church, at least for my thinking. Sometimes I just like to think about this because it's encouraging and it's a little astounding to me. We believe that God is sovereign. Amen? We believe that God is right now bringing his purposes to pass. We believe that God will not fall short in saving his people. That he will definitely call people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We believe that God's love is so strong, nothing could ever separate his church from that love. Not tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or danger or famine or sword. All of that is the power of God in the work of the gospel. And yet, how is that unsurpassed, almighty power displayed in his church? Through the ministry of weak, frail, and dependent people like you and me. Like the apostles before us. We labor to make Christ known. And as we do this, this striking reality becomes clear. It's not our strength that makes the mission go. It's God's strength in us and through us. So in a way... The fight to do the work of the ministry is part of the mission. Our, our toil, verse 29, our toil is part of the very means that God is using to bring glory to His Son. To put it plainly then, being a minister of the gospel is more than we can do. But surprisingly, when we embrace the fact that it's more than we can do, that's where we find that the power of Christ rests upon us. I think this is what Paul means when he says, in 2 Corinthians, that he boasts in his weaknesses, for then the power of God rests upon him. So I'll just say it again, keep at it. Carry on with the work of building up the church, trusting that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working even now in you and me to carry out this good work. Culture of discipleship, that's what we're aiming at. Practically, what can you do different next Sunday to help us cultivate that kind of culture? What can you do different next Sunday to help us cultivate that kind of culture? Well, there's a lot of things that we could say about that. Here's just a couple of simple things just to help you think. I, I'm, I'm not, there's no other grand like plan or vision 
right? It, it, it really is the simplicity of every member ministering to one another. So here's just some ways that you can put this into practice next Sunday. Very simple. One, get here early. Get here early and either talk to someone or serve in a practical way. Two, stay late after the service and talk to someone about what we just heard in the sermon. What stood out to you from God's word today? How do you think that you're gonna apply it? Get here early, stay late. And then three, three, reach out to someone in the week following Sunday with either phone call, text message, email, just with a verse of scripture to encourage. Friends, that's the culture of discipleship. When everyone in the church is doing that, the body grows in remarkable ways, in remarkable ways. So I hope that each of us think of ourselves as a minister of the gospel. And I pray that Paul would, that God would use Paul's example here in the Colossians church to equip us, to encourage us for the work that he's given each of us to do. We've all been entrusted with the gospel, so may we devote ourselves to building that kind of ministry to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to be faithful to what you've called us to do, to minister your word to one another, to not overlook, Father, the everyday ministry in the life of the church, that we would be seeking ways to apply the scriptures in each other's lives in a way that does good to one another, that encourages faith, that admonishes and exhorts and, and equips and encourages. Father, help us. We pray that you, we, we would grow. Each of us would grow, Father, in, in building one another up in the faith so that we all attain to mature manhood in Christ and that we are all presented before him, safe in his grace on that final day. We thank you, Father, for the ministry of the body to itself. We thank you for the ministry of the Lord Jesus that equips us and sustains us as we do this work. We pray, God, that you would please be glorified among us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.